Uh, welcome again to Lakeshore. We're so glad you're with us today. Smyrna Campus, we're glad you're connected with us today. Anybody else that's connected online through our uh, live stream or podcast, we're glad that you've joined us as well. Uh, we are in a series in the book of James, going straight through uh, verse by verse and learning practical teaching that James gives us, James the Lord's brother, uh, who who shares his own personal walk with Christ in this letter, but also challenges us, challenges the church. This letter is written to Christians about how to live out our faith in very practical, real-life ways. And today, we are in a passage that is pretty hard uh, as far as the language and the approach that James takes in this passage. If you've got your Bibles, your smartphone, or tablet, you can pull up James 5, beginning with verse 1. We're going to be looking at several verses there today. There was a devastated-looking man that knocked on the door of a woman in their community. She was known for her generosity, her charity. She opened the door, and he says, uh, Please, ma'am, can you help this poor, tragic family down the street? The father just lost his job. His wife is too ill to work. They're about to be turned out into the cold streets unless someone can pay their rent. The lady said, that's one of the saddest things I've ever heard in my life. May I ask who you are? He says, well, yeah, I'm their landlord. (laughs) That's what James is addressing today in this passage. is how there are some people who have a good amount of wealth, financial resources, but instead of using it for good, they use it to abuse and misuse and and treat harshly the people around them. And that can happen a lot. Now, some of you may be thinking, well, that doesn't really apply to me. Listen to this passage. Beginning with verse 1, James says, Now listen, you rich people. And that's where a lot of us turn it off, right? He's not talking to me. I'm certainly not one of the rich people. Pay attention, all right? Let's go on. Weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. He's not bragging on these guys, is he? He's not saying great job, guys. He's calling them out on the sin in their lives. He says, you've hoarded your wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You've lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You've fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You've condemned and murdered the innocent one who was not opposing you. And some of you are still sitting there thinking, yeah, he ought to get those wealthy people. Good for him. I'm so glad he's calling them out on their greed and their, and their abuse of other people around them as if somehow this passage doesn't apply to us. Heard someone the other day say, our family was so poor, we would go down to Kentucky Fried Chicken to leak, lick other people's fingers. <laughs> I'm sorry, I heard that and had to use it, so it worked, I worked it right in today. I want you to get perspective, and we do this regularly here at Lakeshore to help us get perspective. I know we don't think of ourselves as wealthy, but on a worldwide scale, if your family earns 30000 a year as a family, you're in the top 10% of the world's wealth. The top 
10% at 30,000. That's just right at the poverty level in America for a family of four. That's what we call poverty. But the rest of the world would call that wealth. A lot of us don't realize that if it bumped up to 35,000 a year, it puts us in the top 5% of the wealthy people in the world. At 35,000 a year, we're in the top 5% of wealth in the world. Don't tell me you're not wealthy, that I'm not wealthy. We are. 25%, one-fourth of people in the world live on less than $800 a year. A year. We are wealthy. Doesn't mean we manage it well. Doesn't mean we're not over our heads in debt and barely able to pay our bills. You can be wealthy and still be so far in debt that you can't pay your bills. That says something about our greed, doesn't it? That we can be at that level and still be barely scrimping by and paying our bills. Maybe we don't have our priorities where they need to be. Maybe James has something to say to us, even though we at first didn't put ourselves in that wealthy category. You see, James is speaking to a specific group among the wealthy. We made a couple of mistakes here in the church in America today and in our culture in America today. One mistake is, is we elevate being poor as if that somehow makes you more spiritual. doesn't make you any more spiritual than anybody else. Poor people can be just as greedy as rich people, sometimes more so. So it doesn't, it's not about the amount. It's about the attitude. The other mistake we make is we demonize rich people as if they're all evil, bad, terrible people who abuse everybody else in the world, and it's just not fair. But some of the wealthiest people in the world are also some of the most generous people in the world at the same time. It's not about the amount. It's about your approach your stewardship of the wealth that God entrusts you with. And all of Scripture is filled with instructions about being good stewards of whatever amount God entrusts to your care. And that's what James is hitting on. He's not saying wealth is evil. He's not saying being poor is better. He's not saying either of those things. What he's saying is he's writing to a specific group among the wealthy who don't have their attitude where it needs to be. They, they are using what they have in a way that is totally ungodly, unscriptural, unpleasing to the Father and, and totally counterproductive to the work of the kingdom. And so he's calling us out to rethink how we use and manage the resources that we have. So there are three lessons I want us to focus on today that will help us get these priorities straight the way we need to. The first lesson is this. Uh, evaluate yourself by who you are, not what you have. Evaluate yourself, your life, by who you are, not what you have. Now, I know that's not the American way. The American way is to evaluate people by what they have. Kind of neighborhood do they live in, house do they have, car do they drive. We evaluate people when we first see those things about their lives. And we make determinations about them. If you're struggling financially and you see somebody with a lot, we have this tendency to say, well, they can't be good people. Because I, I work hard and I don't have all that, right? So we look down on them. 
because they have that. Or we are jealous and envious because we really want what they have. And we don't have it. And we say that's not fair. And sometimes we judge somebody by what they don't have. They don't have a nice house or good clothes. And we make a judgment on the surface about they must be lazy. They must not be willing to work hard. They must, not, they must have thrown their money away, bad, made bad decisions in their lives. We just prejudge everything about them because they don't have all of that stuff that we're judging them by. And James is saying it's not about what you have. It's about who you are. He says several things about why that's important. Uh, three reasons we need to evaluate ourselves by, by who we are, not what we have. The first reason is, he says, your wealth will rot. Your wealth will rot. Now, I bet everybody in here understands that. I bet before you came here today, you already knew that. All the stuff, what's going to happen to all of it? It's all going to be destroyed. Every bit of it care how nice your, how nice your house is uh, uh, any of you taken a trip to Europe and you've gone maybe to Rome and areas around Italy there or some of the other European countries and you've seen the old what do we call them ruins at one time they were the pinnacle of the world and now it's ruins and it happened in a pretty short time by the way that their that their great empire fell and crumbled your wealth will rot. That's why Jesus said in Matthew 16, 26, What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? It's just not a good exchange. To not do right with God and not be in a right relationship with God at the expense of uh, trying to pursue the worldly wealth that's going to rot anyway. Now he's not saying you can't have wealth and have a good relationship with God at the same time. That's not what he's saying. He's saying most people are challenged when they have a lot of stuff to keep their relationship with God where it needs to be. There's a battle that takes place there in our hearts to keep God first instead of not only the stuff we already have, but the stuff we want to pursue and get. I don't care where you are right now. I'll bet every one of us is looking for something else that we want. Something else we're planning to get. Something else we want to upgrade with the stuff that we already have, right? Nothing wrong with that as long as it doesn't cause us to move God from first place and put that in his place. That's where the problem comes in. The pursuit of those things. When those things are temporary, they're going to rot. So he says your wealth will rot and he says your possessions will fade. That's another way of saying, well, what looks good right now very shortly after you attain it, how's it going to look? Not quite as good. The car that you bought, somebody's going to ding it. They are. It's going to happen. It may be you. Somebody's going to ding it. And some kid's going to spill or throw up in the back seat, right? If you got children or grandchildren riding in the car with you. And then you get that sour milk smell in there. You can't get that out, right? That nice car you sacrificed so much for, thinking that was going to be so great for you and your family. And then the payments keep coming with the dings in it and the smell and having to clean it up and change the oil and maintain it and the repairs and the payments just keep coming if you didn't pay cash for it. How does that car look now? 
you see it fades, doesn't it? That the, the joy, the excitement that you thought those things were going to bring to your life, it all fades over time. It does. In Matthew 6, Jesus was teaching this in verse 19. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. I'm not going to do the survey again today, but we've done surveys at Lakeshore pretty often. How many of you have a storage building that you're keeping some of your stuff in? It has become a billion-dollar industry in our country just to build cubicles that we can put stuff in. Stuff that we're not using regularly, because if we were using it regularly, we wouldn't put it in the cube, right? We wouldn't put it in the storage area. I can say I don't have one, but then I've got two storage sheds in my backyard, so I can't say anything, right? I'm not paying for another one, but I still have them right there in my own yard. Stuff I can't get in my house that I have stuff in. I have stuff outside my house, too, that I'm keeping in a shed. And some of it was stuff we just thought we had to have. And some of it you haven't pulled out of storage in over two or three years. We just thought we had to have it. You see how it fades over time? Stuff that we thought was so important at one time. And it's not even important enough to get out of storage now. You see how it can fade. And he says your gold and silver will vanish. Your gold and silver will vanish. It's amazing how quickly that can happen. Our country's been through a lot of economic ups and downs. It's a great depression, the stock market crash. We've had the great recession. We've had all kinds of things where it goes up and it goes back down again. And people that on paper look like they had a lot of money, within a matter of 24, 48 hours, all of a sudden with a crash, they have nothing. They have nothing. The whole lifetime was spent accumulating that, by the way. And just like that, it's gone. That's how quickly it can vanish. In Luke 12, Jesus told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant, har abundant harvest. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. So he went down to the storage place and said, I'm going to put some stuff in there. No, he didn't do that. Instead, he built his own storage. He said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you've got plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, wise planning. I'm so proud of you. Is that what he said? He said, you fool. This very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you've prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves but is not rich toward God. It's been said over and over again. You can't take it with you, right? You can't take it with you. We want to use it wisely while God entrusts it to our care. There was a, the story you may have heard. This guy was on his deathbed and he called his wife in and said, Honey, I really do want to take all my money with me. So when I die, I want you to put it in the casket before they close the casket and put me in the ground. And she promised him that she would. So sure enough, he died. And uh, at the funeral, right before they close the casket, she's there with her friend who's trying to comfort her. She knows that, uh, that she's made that promise to her husband. And the friend saw her right before they closed the casket, walk up with a little box and put it in the casket, and then they closed it. Her friend said, please tell me you didn't. Put all that money in there with him. She said, I promised him I would. So I put it all in my account, and I wrote him a check. 
and put that in there. If he could cash it, he could have it, right? I think she was pretty safe, don't you? Because it's not going to do him any good. It's not going to do you any good or me any good when we leave this world. Why do we make that so much about what our lives are all about the whole time we're here when it's going to have no bearing on the rest of our lives for eternity? Again, it's not bad to make a lot of money. It's not bad to work. He's not saying any of that. He's saying make sure that's not what consumes your life and the focus of your life. It's more than that. And we need to start thinking of life as more than that. So the second uh, principle is this. Be content with what you have, not what you desire. Be content with what you have, not what you desire. The scripture is filled with this instruction to, to be content. Now, that's been so misunderstood by the church and sometimes by preachers that teach on this. Being content doesn't mean you have no ambition. It doesn't mean you don't have any drive to, to get promotions or make more money or get a raise. That's not what he's talking about. What he's talking about, this contentment is, is even while you're waiting for the raise or the promotion or, or the, the inheritance or whatever it is that you're waiting on, you still enjoy being a good steward of what you have presently. You're thankful for it and you're using it wisely, properly. That's what contentment is. He's not saying don't have any drive or ambition when he says to be content. In 1 Timothy 6, Paul said to Timothy, But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we'll be content with that. How many people in the world would love just to have that? Right? Just food and clothes. I mean, when you're making less than $800 a year, food and clothes are hard to come by. And a fourth of the world's population doesn't even have that. So we need to learn to have gratitude, real, genuine gratitude for what we do have. I know you might be in a tight financial place right now. I know you might be struggling. It's hard for you to pay your bills. But everybody in the room has got food and clothes. Everybody hearing me online in America can have access to food and clothes right now. All of us. It's available to anybody and everybody that needs it. Let's learn to be grateful that we even have that. What a blessing just that is. You got a shelter over your head? That's, that's an added bonus, right? All those things that we just take for granted and complain about all the time. Be content with what you have with, uh, and, and not what you desire. Here's the thing about an improper, uh, out-of-balance desire for stuff. It, it damages us in several ways. One is it can destroy your integrity if you're driven by more, more, more all the time. It can destroy your integrity. Proverbs 22 verse 1 says this, A good name is more desirable than great riches. To be esteemed is better than silver or gold. Some people in their drive for more will do things to destroy their credibility and their integrity. They'll lie, cheat, steal, or like the people James is talking to, they will abuse other people to get what they want. You see, these people were abusing people who had worked for them. 
And they were doing it in a couple of ways. One was they were being very harsh about what they were making them do and how they made them do it. But the other one was this. They hired them and agreed to pay them a certain amount. And then when it came time for them, they did the work when it came time for them to get paid. It's not that they didn't have the money to pay them. They just chose not to. They withheld their wages from them. Now, there are a lot of people that own businesses that do that. They try to wait as long as they can before they will pay what they owe somebody because they can then use the money for other things for themselves in the meantime, right? You say, yeah, those rich people, they're so bad. But what about the Christian who, right or wrong, obligates yourself to a debt and then you try to get out of paying that debt because it's hard for you to pay it now? Didn't you obligate yourself to that? Didn't you sign your name on the dotted line? Didn't you do it electronically or however you did it? Agree to that obligation that you were going to pay that, and now you're trying to get out of it because it's hard? Without even thinking about what that does to the person that you owed the money to? Right? You say, well, they had bankruptcy in the Bible. Not exactly the way we're doing it. Okay. They had something different. They had a seven-year thing where every seven years debts would be canceled. And the way they got around that was they would only loan people money for seven years. Right? They got around that anyway. Okay? That's not the same thing as what we're doing today where we're just saying I'm not going to pay it and the courts will excuse it. It's like the big push right now with a lot of politicians to get your vote. Let's cancel all school debt. Well, did you agree to pay it? Right? What if everybody did that? What if everybody just said, I'm not going to pay it because it's hard for me now? Not just school debt, but the car loan and the house mortgage and everything else. You know what would happen? The country would collapse. You can't function that way. You can't survive that way. And Christians ought to have enough integrity to say, if I made the obligation, I'm going to do everything I can to do what I promised I would do. It is a promise when you sign the note that I will pay this money back. That's a promise you're making. Why would you not keep your promise because you represent Jesus Christ in the world? Shouldn't you be a better representation of Christ than that? Now, I'm not trying to condemn anybody. If you've gone through bankruptcy or whatever, I know it probably was a really hard thing, and God's grace is more than enough for you. But moving forward, let's pay what we say we're going to pay. Let's meet our obligations. Let's keep our integrity that when we make a promise, we follow through on keeping that promise financially or any other way. Let's do it the right way. Pay your bills and be honest about it. Treat people right. If you owe them some money, do what you can to make sure you pay them what you said you were going to pay them. Whether they work for you or you just made a loan, they made a loan to you, whatever it is. Don't ruin your integrity. It can also destroy your relationship with others, can it? The finances do that a lot. This, this exchange of money and material things can really hurt relationships. Uh, I heard these sayings. I like this one. Always borrow money from a pessimist because he won't expect it back. <laughs> Here's another one. Never, never lend money to a friend. It's dangerous. It could damage his memory. Right? Doesn't it make it odd when you've loaned and awkward when you loan somebody some money and they know they owe you some money and they're not ready to pay what they're supposed to pay? Doesn't that hurt the relationship then? Absolutely. You see, it can destroy relationships with other people. This financial stuff. 
Sue Ann and I made a decision a long time ago that if we help somebody out financially, we just do it without any expectation of repayment. Now, we don't always do it, so don't come to us after the service. But, <laughs> but when we do it, we don't do it unless we can say, we could write that off as a loss. That'll be fine. We're just doing it to help the person. If we never see a dime back, that's okay. We do that here at Lakeshore, too, through our, our help fund that we help out people in the community. Uh, people will always ask us, could you, could you help me pay this bill, and we'll pay it back to the church. We're not in the loan business at Lakeshore. If we can help pay your bill, we'll do that. If we can't, we'll tell you that. But, and if you choose to give money to the church, that's great. That's funds that we can then go help somebody else with. But we're not setting up a loan payment system for anybody that we help out. Okay? Because it would hurt the relationship and the example of Christ. 1 Timothy 6, verse 9, he gives us this warning. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. And this is the most misquoted verse in the Bible, verse 10. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. What does everybody say? Money is the root of all evil, right? Don't you hear that all the time? The Bible never says money's evil or great or anything in between. It's just a tool that we can use for good or bad. But it's the love of money that is a root of people doing all kinds of evil things. He says, some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Which leads to the other problem with this, and that is it can destroy your relationship with God too. You get this out of whack. And it can destroy your relationship with God. Jesus said a couple of things that relate to that. He said you can't serve two masters. Right? Both of them can't be first in your life. One's going to be first and the other one's going to be somewhere else down the line. You can't serve two masters. So if you're serving wealth and the accumulation of wealth, then wealth is your master, not God. But if you're serving God, wealth can be your servant. To help you honor God. That's the way that will work. But you can't serve both at the same time. So you have to decide who the master is going to be in your life. I have to decide that for my life, right? He also said where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. That's why this is a big deal to God. That's why he has more to say about this in Scripture than any other subject in the Bible. It's because he knows it's an indication of where our hearts are. It's an indication of how much we truly love God. Not how much we say we love God, but how much we actually love God. It's easy to talk about loving God and never honor Him with our finances. And Jesus said, okay, where your treasure is, guess what? I already know where your heart is too. It's not with me, no matter how much you say it is. Now that doesn't mean that you can't Again, try to achieve and earn more. He's not saying that. He's just saying God needs to be honored with that, with whatever amount that you do have. So, in light of that, let's look at the third principle that he applies here in this passage, and that is we need to desire wealth in heaven. Realize that's more valuable than the wealth of the temporary things on earth. And a lot of people are confused. Well, what, how does that work? What does that look like to desire wealth in heaven, to, 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 to build up wealth in heaven? Well, I want to start with something that, that I think all of us need to do, at least on a certain level, and that is, well, before we can get to that, we need to repent. To repent means to change our mind about what we're doing. It means it starts in the heart. It's a change of the mind or the will. 
that produces different actions as a result. That's what repentance is. And, and I think everybody in the church in America needs to do some repenting. Because overall in the church of America, on average, church members on average are giving less than 2% of their income back to fund the ministries of the church. That's pitiful. There are third world countries where on average they do better than that. On percentage that they give back to support the work of the church. You see, we've gotten the priorities out of order. We started desiring the stuff more than we desire God and his kingdom. And Jesus said, seek first the kingdom and his righteousness. And then he'll help you take care of the rest of that stuff. We've reversed the order in the church in America today. So we need to repent. There was a guy that heard a sermon about lying and deceiving and, and cheating with your money. And he decided it, it got to him. He wrote the IRS and he said, I can't sleep knowing that I've cheated on my income tax and closed as a check for $150. And he put a P.S. If I can't sleep tonight, I'll send the rest. <laughs> you know, just enough to ease his conscience a little bit, right? And that's how we're giving to God. We're trying to ease our conscience by giving a little bit thinking that makes everything good with God, when it may not at all be a reflection that God is first in our lives, that he's the highest priority of our lives. And only you can decide, is that showing God is first priority or not? Only you and God, he knows your heart, he knows your details of your situation, but you got to ask yourself, is that really showing that I have repented of putting other things first, and now I'm putting God first. But once you repent, the second step is this. Start practicing generosity. Start practicing generosity. I love uh, my wife, Sue Ann, and I. We've always done this a little bit. We look for opportunities to surprise someone with a gift anonymously, and we'll do that once in a while. I'm not saying that to brag on us. We learn that from other people, and, and I'm saying that because it blesses us so much to do that once in a while. Uh, it could be a server at a restaurant. It could be somebody at a business or something. It could be people we don't ever know or see that we do it in a creative way. And, and now Sue Ann, through some uh, coaching she's been going through, uh, was challenged to do what they call Wealth Wednesday. So every Wednesday, she looks for an opportunity to bless somebody financially that she would maybe have not paid attention to or noticed before and so she plans it is by intent so you don't just leave it up to chance if we leave it up to chance how often does this happen right we have to really plan to do it and commit to doing it and so every Wednesday she's blessing somebody with a special thing financially that that they might not otherwise have and we don't even know the person a lot of times or, or even see when they get it sometimes we're not around when it happens and and that's okay Here's what I've learned about practicing generosity. It changes you a lot more than it changes the people that you're blessing. It transforms your life even more than it blesses them. Uh, the more you can learn to live generously, the more joy you're going to have in your walk with Christ. There is no doubt about it. I've seen it over and over again. There was a local charity in a small town that had never received a donation from the banker in town. And uh, so they decided that, that they would approach him. The director made a phone call, said to the banker, our records show that you make 500000 a year, yet you haven't given a penny to charity. And the director said, well, wouldn't you like to help the community? The banker replied, well, did your research show that my mother is ill with extremely expensive medical bills? And the director said, uh, no. Or that my brother is blind and unemployed? 
or that my sister's husband died leaving her broke with four kids? The director said, "Uh, I'm sorry, I had no idea. And the banker said, well, if I don't give them any money, why would I give any to you? (laughs) We need to repent and practice generosity as a regular part of who we are and what we do. And the third step is to serve humbly. You see, servants are generous people. They are. When you choose willingly to serve, that in itself is an act of generosity. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul is writing to the church at Corinth there. And in the first letter, he had challenged them. What they were doing in the churches at the time is the the Christians in Jerusalem were suffering great persecution. Many had lost their jobs and had been put in prison and all those things were happening to them. The persecution was great. And so the other churches outside Jerusalem were taking up a special offering to help their brothers and sisters in Jerusalem. The church at Corinth had said, yeah, we'll help out. We'll, we'll give a big offering. We'll, we'll, you know, it was almost like they were making a show out of it. And then, by the time Paul writes the second letter, guess what they hadn't done yet? They hadn't given their offering yet. They had not collected it even to help out. And so Paul is encouraging them in 2 Corinthians 8 by comparing what they were saying and doing with some other churches. Listen to what he says, verse 1. And now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given to the Macedonian churches. Now, Macedonia was a province that was next to the area where Jerusalem was. And the churches there were mostly uh, not Jewish uh, populated, but mostly Greek populated churches. And Macedonia was a province that was going through its own problems. They had had a, a famine and, and crops were failing and people were struggling in those churches. Now, there was more than one church in Macedonia. There were several that we learn about in the New Testament. And all of them were suffering, okay? Here's what he says about those churches. In the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. Did you hear that? It sounds like a contradiction. A severe trial, very severe trial, extreme poverty, yet they had overflowing joy and they were rich in generosity. Wow. Those things don't seem to go together, do they? Here's what he went on to say. For I testify that they gave already as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. Entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people. You know what it means? They had not even asked them to help. And what did they do? They pleaded and begged for the opportunity to help. I've said this before as a pastor. I have yet to have a church member come beg me for the chance to give more money to the church. To help out more. Not once has that happened. Yet that's the heart they had in the churches of Macedonia. So he goes on to say, this is great. They exceeded our expectations. They gave themselves first of all to the Lord. See, that was the key. Who was first in their lives? The Lord was. And then by the will of God also to us. So we urge Titus, just as he had earlier made a beginning, to bring to completion this act of grace on your part. See, they started talking about it, but they hadn't done it. And then he says this, but since you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in the love we have kindled in you, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. I'm not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, 
yet for your sake he became poor so that you through his poverty might become rich. You see, Paul tied it right back to what should be the motivating factor for all of us. Our God is a generous God who has not withheld anything from us, even his own son, who emptied himself of equality with God and gave himself as a servant to us, a servant obedient even to death on a cross. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that that we've learned again from James a reminder that we needed to have all of us calling us to repentance because so many times, especially in this wealthy country we live in, it's easy for us to gripe and complain and not have a grateful heart and a grateful spirit for the blessings that we do have. Thanks for reminding us, Father, just how blessed we are. The greatest blessing of all is the gift of your son, Jesus. What a price you were willing to pay so that we could inherit eternal life. That makes us wealthier. The fact that we know Christ as our Lord and Savior, that we have eternal life secured through his sacrifice, that makes us wealthier than anybody else on the earth if we have that today. So, Father, help us to have a heart of gratitude and generosity. And if there's someone here today who needs to to go through that process of reorganizing what is the priority of their lives, and today they've decided to make you first, to put Jesus on the throne of their hearts, I pray that today, that as we have this time of invitation, they would come and make that commitment in their lives. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.